Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Majority Investor Circle podcast, a podcast for everyday new majority investors looking to invest in founders who look like them. At the New Majority, we scan the top equity crowdfunding platforms for new majority founders, founders who identify as women, BIPOC, or LGBTQ. Every founder we feature is from underrepresented companies, building a company with a for-profit business model that has impact built in as measured by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, they're currently fundraising from you. We record this episode in March of 2023. Stay tuned at the end of today's episode for a debrief about key topics discussed during the episode. Today's guest and feature founder is Jane Segui, CEO and co-founder of Poly, an app that provides personalized research and OBGYN-approved interventions to help people diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome, also known as PCOS, and really helps them manage their reproductive health and emotional well-being. For those of you who aren't familiar with PCOS, and I've gotten a lot more familiar in doing research for this episode with Jane, it's a condition that affects about 6 to 12% or as many as 5 million women in the U.S. who are of reproductive age. And there's no real single test to diagnose. It's often misdiagnosed because it is a collection of symptoms that can but don't always include intermittent or erratic periods, um, acne, face and body hair growth, thicker thicker patches of skin, anxiety, and more. So if not treated, it can lead to a wider range of symptoms and problems, but it's difficult to spot um, even at the beginning. And financially, it costs anywhere from $2,000 to $13,000 per year to treat, not to mention the emotional and really mental toll of finding the right treatment after you finally get diagnosed. So with this additional context, I'd like to welcome Jane to the New Majority Investor Circle podcast. We are so excited to highlight you and Polly as one of our 10 featured founders and startups for Q1 of 2023, based on the work that you're doing, the product, and really the size of market. Um, Unfortunately, it's in a little bit of a twist, right? You recently pulled your equity crowdfunding campaign from Republic. And so we'll definitely talk a little bit about that in a bit. But first, I want to say thank you again for joining us today and for the work you're doing. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me, Mackenzie. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. And now before we get into um, that update about the campaign and then where that leaves Polly at today, I'd like to hear more about Polly in your own words. So can you give our listeners your 30, 60 second overview or pitch? Of course. Yeah. So Polly is a digital health startup that is helping solve for the problem of what my co-founder and I like to call complex chronic conditions for women. And so thinking about the 30% of menstruating people that are impacted by some type of chronic hormone imbalance or autoimmune disorder, or even gut or metabolic problem, similar to polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And that was the first condition that we launched for. Uh, But it's just a very underserved patient population with minimal to no lifestyle support out there. And so what Polly does is it provides day-to-day support ranging from nutrition guidance and exercise uh, guidance, stress management supplements to our members in a very personalized and sustainable way. I love that. And it started with PCOS, but has grown and has expanded into kind of additional conditions, additional diagnoses, right? 
And so exactly. with that, um, you know, most founders will have a personal connection or professional experience or, you know, some other differentiator that really makes them uniquely qualified. And one of our first featured founders and guests, Emily, she was really the end customer that she was di- designing for. And so I know you were diagnosed with PCOS and collagen, something that you've talked about in the past. So I'm assuming that that played into to Polly a little bit, but can you share a bit more about how it's really informed Polly and influenced how and kind of what you've built? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was a freshman in college, I went to Georgetown for undergrad. I started experiencing symptoms like bad acne, hair loss, irregular periods, and even some mood related stuff like anxiety and insomnia that came up out of the blue. And I knew that that was not normal for me. I was going to a lot of different doctors. I was in a very privileged position where my mom was had, had been a nurse, excuse me. And she had done a lot of research for me. She was shipping me around to different physicians. And it still took one year to get a diagnosis. And that was under like a very actively searching for a diagnosis uh, perspective. And then even once I was diagnosed, it just took another long time to figure out how to manage the symptoms. And so for me, uh, I ended up learning after two total years of searching for answers that high stress levels and some inflammation in my body were likely causing my PCOS. For other people, it may be metabolic problems or a genetic issue or more environmental factors like chemicals that we are eating or like using as household products. Uh, It really depends on the person. And once I learned what the actual triggers of my case of PCOS were, I was able to, to, first of all, identify them. And then I was able to further identify ways that I could reverse the symptoms. And that personalization was just so key for me. It turned the experience into a very empowering one, even though it started off as very negative. Um, It took a really big hit on my quality of life. And all in all, it just really catalyzed a passion for female health and more specifically hormonal health at a pretty young age. And this was all in like 2011, 2012, and not many people were talking about hormonal health. And so it's been very encouraging and exciting over the years to see more people speaking out about PCOS and hypothyroidism and endometriosis and all of these sorts of issues that impact menstruating people. Interesting. Okay. And so did, once you had this experience, did you immediately go into like solutioning? Were you always like, yes, I believe I will be an entrepreneur and I'm going to solve this problem. Is this the path, right? You, once you got that diagnosis, you had this experience or did you come to Polly and this kind of entrepreneurial path and maybe a, a side door? Yeah, uh, more of a side door. I I kind of initially, at least, I was more of like a reluctant entrepreneur. I I started Polly with my co-founder Sabrina because it got to the point where I couldn't really imagine myself doing anything else. Um, I had been working in venture capital immediately prior to starting Polly, and the fund that I was working at it was called it is called NGP Capital. I had been hired as a healthcare associate or analyst, and so my job was meeting with a bunch of digital health startups and doing due diligence on them. And I loved it, and I was focusing a lot on chronic disease management companies that sold into payers and self-insured employers. They had a B two B two C business model where they were selling into these enterprises on the basis that they were helping them keep their population's care costs low. 
Um, and I became really familiar with that model. And then it kind of got to the point where my, the fund I was working at, unfortunately, stopped investing in digital health. I was placed in a cybersecurity group. It became very evident to me very quickly that I was actually not passionate about investing at that point in my life, at least. Uh, but I was passionate about the healthcare part. And so I then started to kind of look at other jobs. I was having a lot of coffee chats with different women's health founders. And I was really excited about what was going on more broadly in femtech at the time. Um, and there is a lot of infertility funding going on and a lot of startups and like the primary care space and more like horizontal urgent care uh, platforms like Maven, for example. And a lot of those companies were touching PCOS and these other chronic conditions for women, but they were not, they were not taking a vertical approach to solving for them. And having had my experience diligencing chronic disease management companies that had taken vertical approaches and done that very, very efficiently and well. Um, and then my personal experience, I just knew that I wanted to kind of take that model and apply it to female health. I love that. And I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit and where, yeah. where we want to go just because you brought us there into kind of what the product is and then what the business model is. So tell us a little bit more about what it is today, kind of the business model, um, members, and then tell us kind of where you're going. Kind of similar as how you started with PCOS, but now you're broadening right to um, a much broader range of, of, of diseases. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we are taking an approach similar to what a lot of the earlier chronic disease management companies did, where we we launched with a consumer subscription. You can download Poly in the App Store and also the Google Play Store. So we're available for Apple and Android devices. Um, we we have two membership options available. One's more of a premium product that's $90 per month. And then we have our flex product that is $10 per month. And we have some transactional revenue that comes in from lab work and then also supplements. But for the most part, it's a subscription business. And consumer health is really booming right now. It had a really big resurgence over COVID, um, especially like the early days of COVID. But it's been a thing for years and years. It's always been a pretty tough space to play in. There are obviously many companies that do it well. But for anyone listening who either like has a business or works at a business or like knows someone who works at a business that survives on social media ads, that's a really, really competitive and difficult, tough to crack code. Um, and so I personally am very bearish on social ads and just growing a consumer health business in general. I, I, I know that it can be done. It's not what we want to build with Poly, though. Uh, we really believe in making this a truly accessible solution. And so what that means is being reimbursed by health insurance, um, both like private health insurance plans, but also Medicaid plans and even selling into employers so that we can be an employee benefit. And that's our overall vision. And that's the B2B2C model that I had referenced earlier. It takes a long time to get there though. And so the way that we are evolving or at least planning to evolve is we've launched with this B2C model. Ideally, we can get enough data points, even run a study of sorts to really show that our product is working and that our program can result in a reduced cost uh, or reduced spend for these different payers in the healthcare system today. And so hopefully that makes sense. Um, it'll, it'll be a long road to get there, though. We're experimenting a lot with different partnerships and acquisition channels and stuff like that, just because we know that there are a lot of creative ways to make money and also a lot of creative ways to form a business model and so while that is our gold standard goal for where we would like to go business model wise, we're also very, very humble and, and recognize that we could also 
be a tool that we that sells into providers or we partner with providers and doctors can send patients to poly. We could work for, with pharmaceutical companies. Um, the way that the product is positioned today is very complementary to different incumbents in the healthcare system. Uh, and then one more thing, I know I'm okay. really rambling, but think, thinking about conditions, we launched with PCOS, like you said earlier on, Mackenzie, uh, and we are in the process of expanding into other sorts of hormonal and autoimmune gut metabolic disorders for menstruating people. And so that takes our overall market from 10% of menstruating people to over 30% of menstruating people. And so it makes the market a lot bigger. And the issue with a lot of these conditions is that they're very complicated. It's not as easy as just like taking a pill and the symptoms go away forever. And so since we're taking this root cause approach, it's, it's actually pretty feasible for us to very rapidly expand into these other, other disorders. Got it. I love that. And so from a competitor's perspective, right, because kind of expanding also increases who, who is that your competitor? Are are the others taking this root cause approach or kind of what's value prop uh, to your customers that differs from, from others? Yeah, you know, we do have some competitors out there. If anyone has heard of like Alara, for example, they're a PCOS company. Well Theory is an autoimmune coaching platform that is more similar, like scope wise to Poly. Alara does medical grade care. In terms of like where we are positioned, we we really are seeing our differentiators being the behavior science side of things, um, and then also the level of personalization that we're doing. And so from the behavior science side of things, our care teams, so the care teams that Poly members work with are comprised of registered dietitians and health coaches. Uh, since we are doing an out-of-pocket only and an HSA and FSA only scope right now, we are able to work across state lines with our care teams because we're not providing medical treatment. It's all like dietary and wellness coaching, et cetera. And that makes us much more flexible and much more nimble. And we really appreciate that. It also keeps us really complementary to OBGYN offices and primary care physicians and even infertility clinics and stuff like that. Since we're not owning that like medication and medical procedure side things. And we're very optimistic that that will help us more rapidly expand in a way that's not relying solely on social ads. And then on the personalization side of things, I would say that there's like a few other companies out there that do the rigor of testing that we do. Uh, It's not necessarily many though. And a lot of them that do the rigor of testing that they do, they kind of have this like goop like branding um, where it's it's very woo woo wellnessy. And from my perspective and my co-founder's perspective, we think that that can be a little bit alienating. And it's not that that level of personalization should be um, something that like only a few people can afford. And it's actually quite affordable when you just do a few blood tests prior to making any like lifestyle recommendations and stuff like that. And so we're just trying to make that whole approach, which we call like this root cause approach, um, more approachable and, and kind of like D not, not destigmatize it, but like kind of detach it from this like goop image, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think that was something that you've talked about now a little bit, but we definitely yeah. wanted to talk about around kind of making, making sure that poly is accessible versus, um, what, you know, like luxury healthcare where yes. it's just nice yeah. to have, if you have the means, you can access it. And so I love hearing that that's kind of where Polly is trying to, to focus on, right? Um, and that's yeah. really the customers that you're trying to target versus maybe on the, the goop side of the house. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and nothing wrong with companies that do want to go that route and kind of be this like luxury healthcare company. There's a there's a place and a market for that. Um, but I do think mm-hmm. that when we're talking about these complex chronic conditions, the fact that uh BIPOC communities and people in lower income tiers are much more disproportionately affected and also more likely to have severe cases of all these conditions. It's really important to us that that we really, really lean into the accessibility side of things. And maybe this is a good moment to ask you kind of what is the big vision for Polly? So you've shared a little bit, yeah. but what would be the moment where you would say, that's it? Like that is, we can, I can retire. I have built Polly. I've had the impact that I want to have. So where, what's the big vision? You know, there's a few different elements of that. And the first I would say is that we really want to spread awareness about what these conditions are. We don't want PCOS or endometriosis or Hashimoto's or like lupus to come up in a conversation and have someone raise their eyebrows and be like, what's that? Or have someone raise their eyebrows and say, doesn't that mean that you can't have kids? Uh, There's a lot of myths around these conditions. There's a lot of stigma and it results in patients feeling very ashamed and embarrassed. And that was something that I dealt with firsthand. And I'm now on the other side of that, but that shouldn't be the norm. You know, it should not be the status quo. And so from an awareness perspective, we just want to be a brand that spreads knowledge and education about what these conditions are um, and also really, really tears down the stigma. And we want to normalize them because again, over 30% of menstruating people are dealing with one of these issues. Uh, it's, It's not a niche thing. It's not a rare thing to be dealing with. And then the second thing is just like from research and a research perspective and the rest of the healthcare system, we want to be really integrated in the rest of the healthcare system. We don't want to be a standalone solution. We don't want to be just another virtual care clinic that's providing end-to-end PCOS care for our members. And while that approach could, of course, help people, the way that we see real systemic change happening, we must be partnering with existing physicians, with health insurance companies, even with like pharmaceutical companies. And taking that route is really tough because healthcare moves very slow and large healthcare institutions especially move very slow um, in comparison to like the more nimble startups. But it's just really important, again, to us that we're we're like at the at the ground level having an impact on just like different sorts of like protocols for PCOS and these other conditions. And it's really hard to do if we are too separate from the existing system. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I imagine that that can also be a little bit expensive to to do, especially as an early stage startup. So um, talk to us a little a bit about fundraising. And yeah. um, obviously, as we had mentioned at the top of the episode, right, um, we had featured uh, Polly within the Q1 featured founders raising on Republic. So tell us a little bit more about the the fundraising journey, um, where you are today, um, why you chose equity crowdfunding to be kind of like the alongside investment, uh, what what happened with that campaign and maybe where it fits into the future. Yeah. A lot, all the questions around the money. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So we are huge fans of crowdfunding. And I, again, I worked in venture. I have been on that side of the table. And I was really drawn to venture because before doing venture, I had done management consulting. Um, and I'm laughing again, again, for anyone who has been a consultant, you probably understand what I'm saying, but I, I really wanted to have more of an impact than I felt I had as a consultant. And then I went into venture and the fund that I was working at certainly did have an impact. 
Uh, but it was, there's still just like in the industry as a whole, not even thinking about just the fun that I was at. Um, it's a really, really tough industry to break into. And even to become a limited partner in a venture fund, a lot of these funds have minimum check sizes that are absolutely insane. Uh, it's, it's just really, really difficult and it's not realistic for the average person. And so from like a crowdfunding perspective, I love that it really diversifies investing. It just lowers the bar to access by so much. And it's also a, a quote unquote safe way to do it. Um, you're not like giving your money under the table to some founder, even if you're not an accredited investor, et cetera. And from like a mission perspective, you know, we we want to be a company that is increasing access to quality care for these chronic conditions. And we also believe in increasing access to investing and just democratizing investing in general. And so that's why we did do a Republic campaign. Um, I'm a huge fan of the platform in general. And unfortunately, we actually withdrew it because we were not at the point of hitting our minimum goal. And we just had to focus on other fundraising efforts. Um, we we did not have enough budget to put money into paid ads. And it was kind of just a long, a long list of unfortunate occurrences. We we launched right when all the SVB drama was happening as well. Um, but not out of the question for the future for us whatsoever. And I really do recommend Republic super highly and like Seed Invest is another platform that we spoke with pretty extensively and uh, cannot recommend either enough. Yeah, I think, I mean, that will really resonate with obviously me, but also our new majority, new majority investors circle, right? Because our mission is to close the yeah. gender wealth gap through entrepreneurship and investing. And so that's why I'm here. But I love that that similar mission kind of pulled you into, hey, let's open this up. Maybe our members, the members of, of Poly can actually invest in um, and alongside so that they're engaged both as like the customer, but also from, from the ownership side. So I think it's interesting yeah. that you definitely could pull it back around, you know, in future rounds. Um, where are you today with fundraising? What are you trying to raise and what are the milestones that you're looking to accomplish with that to get us to that end vision that you painted? Yeah. So to date, we've raised just under like $900,000 total. So we've been pretty scrappy. We started the company uh, like three years ago, which is insane. And my co-founder Sabrina and I worked on a different idea for the first year. And then we pivoted to our current model uh, like two years ago. Um, wow. And yeah, we, we can get more into that if you would like. But in terms of like fundraising going forward, uh, we're really in a mode right now of where we are trying to find product market fit. And this is like such a debated, controversial term. I think people have like very different definitions of what it actually is. Uh, but we are very aware, or at least I am, I, I do not think that we have found product market fit yet. We're so early. There are so many different business model paths that we do want to explore. Again, with like the ultimate goal being selling into health insurance companies and employers, because we think it's the most like predictable and sustainable business model on our end, while also giving the most people access. Um, but that being said, in the next year, we're going to be experimenting with several larger like enterprise partnerships and like different sorts of segments. Uh, and then also experimenting with more uh, paid acquisition on the B2C side, not necessarily social ads. I think I feel like I've I've been really just kind of tearing social ads down this whole time. No, no shade against them if anyone does like social ads, but micro influencer partnerships, different sorts of brand partnerships, stuff like that on the consumer end of things. Um, and we will be raising a $1.5 million round on a safe. We will probably raise like a chunk of that money in the next few months 
prove out a few data points and just milestones and then continue raising the end of it. Uh, I really don't believe in raising money for the sake of raising money. And especially after working in venture, it's it's a huge stress point for me. Um, and we've gotten pretty far with like under a million dollars raised so far. And every day still, even with the market today, you're still seeing a lot of announcements about pre-product companies raising millions of dollars. And it's really exciting. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're kind of like hitting those proof points and those data points and like inching our way toward profitability before we raise so much money uh, that we either don't know where to put it with like a really like evidence-based perspective, you know, um, we don't want to just willy nilly throw money at things or just spend it, you know, and I think it's really easy to go through money and spend it too quickly if you raise a lot of money. And so we are making sure that we remain scrappy. I love that. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of those kind of no duh, right? You shouldn't just raise just yeah. for the sake of raising. But it's also something yeah. that once you get into that early stage startup, you know, kind of space and everyone's always talking about raising. And I, I think it's very easy to, to forget. Yes, this is a business and, you know, really the best capital for any business is revenue. So anything, any money that you're raising that is not inching you towards getting that revenue is, is really not, not helpful. <laughs> it can be distracting. Yeah. even. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And investors have a much keener eye on like profitability now and compared to like a year ago, two years ago, it's like a totally different world. And also that's me and Sabrina's goal, right? Is to be a profitable business where we don't need to keep raising money to keep ourselves alive. And it's it's very much so like in the realm of possibility with our current burn now. And so even with this round, if we were to raise like, these are arbitrary numbers, but if we were to raise like $500,000, and get to the point where we are nearly profitable, maybe we would just raise another 250K or something to just kind of get us to a point where we are owning our own destiny. I love that. And I think you just touched on, so, you know, a lot of the stress, there's a huge responsibility to starting a company and especially a company that is dealing with something so kind of intimate and personal um, and fraught with, I mean, I think healthcare is in general a very, um, a topic that will bring up a lot. Right. And so you're taking a huge yeah. responsibility and in stepping into someone's life and, and helping them out in this situation. So thinking about kind of all the responsibilities of being a founder, but then a founder within the healthcare space and knowing that stress was one of the causes for, or triggers for your own PCOS. How do you balance that? Is that something that yeah. you're very mindful of? Is that something that you struggle with or you're like piece of cake? I've got yeah. it now at this point. Um, yeah, I think that's something that as from a founder speaking as a founder myself, right? I think that stress and the ups yeah. and downs each day, and I can't imagine if that was a trigger as well for, for yeah. broader health issues. Yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. <laughs> um, it it really is for me important to keep my stress in line because my physical symptoms can come back if I get stressed. And I've been fortunate enough to have been off of the PCOS spectrum for like eight eight-ish years at this point, I believe. Um, a lot of people can kind of hop on and off. But if I go through a really stressful period or, or if I'm like training for a race and traveling a lot and have a decent amount going on with work, um, my periods can get irregular. My acne can come back and those warning signals kind of flash saying that I need to start prioritizing rest and recovery. And for me, it's it's hard. You know, it's a really difficult thing to balance. Um, I will say that like, as I have gotten older, I think that there's just been like a natural perspective that has come with, 
with age compared to my college self and even like my just out of college self. Uh, I just have like, I have a completely different perspective than I used to. I, I largely define success in a much different way than I used to. Um, that was kind of something that happened like through therapy, I would say, which is not even necessarily like specifically through work, although everything is kind of connected to each other. Right. And that, that whole like internal perspective of mine and just like the, the broader realignment that I've been having internally over the past few years with like, what is success? What matters to me? Um, it's made it much more easy to manage stress, I would say. And it makes it more easy to have boundaries. And it's something that I didn't really go into super intentionally being like, I want to completely change my relationship to work and stress. Uh, but it's just kind of unfolded through my twenties and, and now I'm about to be 30 and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve. Um, I, but all in all, I think the boundaries are important. I don't like to have calls before 9am. I don't like to call have calls after 5pm. I typically just close my laptop at like seven or eight, especially since I'm working from home uh, and try not to look at stuff unless there's like a deadline. But part of the beauty of where Polly is today um, is that we do have a lot of flexibility still in terms of like our, our day-to-day call schedule and, and also the projects that we're working on. I love that. And I think that's so important because a lot of times within the the early stage founder space, you just hear about if you're not thinking about it 24 seven, if you're not working on it 24 yeah. seven, you know, you won't make it right. The odds are stacked. So, but I think it's so important to preserve those boundaries to preserve yes. that mental space so that yeah. you can come back and be creative and kind of give your best yeah. self during the nine to five. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's like the creativity and the flexibility and like ability to like, quickly let go of an idea that's not working and move on to a new one without being too tied or attached to that is so important at this stage, like way more important, I would say, than later stage companies. Um, and so I, especially for like the super early stage founders, I I really repel against like the rise and grind mentality and, and hustle culture stuff a lot of the time, just because I, I think that people are kind of doing themselves a disservice if they're not giving themselves like the rest and silence and time off needed for real creativity. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to ask our final question, which typically is thinking about, you know, what is your ask to the new majority investors circle, right? And so I think yeah. to the new majority, what is your ask to the new majority investor circle who wanted to invest in Polly, right? Yeah. And so they still love it. Now they're involved, right? But they and they want to support you in another way until perhaps that next um, equity crowdfunding round comes up. So what would be your uh, ask uh, that goes beyond the financial? Yeah, if anyone is in like the healthcare world, if people have relationships with large provider networks, especially like fertility clinics um, or just like large OBGYN networks, et cetera, we are in a process right now of partnering with a bunch of offices and from like an acquisition, new customer acquisition perspective, that's very, very helpful for us. Um, also thinking about like anyone that is working at a health insurance company or works at like a consulting firm that has clients who are health insurance companies, uh, we're not quite at the point where 
where we are selling to them, but we are very much so having like exploratory conversations to figure out like, what does our future study need to look like? Um, And so we would welcome any introduction like that. And for anyone who might be interested in coming in from an angel perspective, they can reach out to me. Uh, I have some folks in my network who are kind of interested in putting together an SPV so that people with smaller check sizes can still come in and we can just have that in there is one line on our cap table. Um, but anything, and, and I'm also, even if anyone was just diagnosed with PCOS or endometriosis or is dealing with like infertility, uh, I love talking to people about this stuff. And I, I've had a bunch of friends come to me over the years. I still do a bunch of discovery calls every week with Polly where I speak with new potential customers. Um, and that's really the most rewarding part of my job is like the one-on-one customer interaction. And so if anyone has been dealing with their own health struggles, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jane, for joining us today, for sharing a little bit about your story, um, where Polly's going um, and where it's at today. So we were very excited to feature you. We're excited to lift up the work that you're doing today and definitely wish you the best of luck in the pursuit of the mission. Um, And so while Polly's campaign is no longer live, you can read more about what that campaign was and the company on the newmajorityinvest.com. And of course, by downloading the Poly PCOS app. So thank you again, Jane. Thank you so much, Mackenzie. This is so fun. Hi again, this is Mackenzie. And with a new year, we are trying something new with our podcast. So one of my favorite things to do after we record each episode is to do a quick debrief with my chief of staff. We love geeking out about what we've learned, whether we've gained clarity on the company, are we bigger fans of the founder or not, and what questions the conversation raised. So with this new segment, we are adding on to the podcast. We're bringing this mostly unedited conversation to you. I expect you continue learning alongside us. Drop us a voice memo with your reactions, questions, or thoughts. Send it to Mackenzie at thenewmajorityinvest.com. And with that, let's introduce Pauline, the voice, the editor, and my right-hand woman behind the New Majority Podcast. Hi, New Majority Investor Circle. My name's Pauline, and like Mackenzie said, I'm the Chief of Staff at the New Majority. I love learning about the intricacies of business operations, especially when it comes to the world of equity crowdfunding and how early-stage businesses can leverage this tool for their growth. I'm super excited to be here today and dive into some key takeaways and insights from this episode. So let's dive into our debrief. We recorded this podcast almost 10 months ago, which we fully admit is way too long, especially for a startup, but we can still learn a lot from their experience, especially how they moved away from equity crowdfunding in the end. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Mackenzie, do you know why they ended up moving away from equity crowdfunding? I know that when we had talked to Jane, when we were uh, planning on recording the podcast, right, she had said that she had this big update. And it was that they were actually canceling their campaign on Republic. And one of the things that she specifically mentioned was they likely were going to have trouble hitting their minimum investment. So if you go on to any crowdfunding campaign, there's generally a target amount. And then there's generally the minimum of what they're trying to raise. And I think that a lot of times when founders come into equity crowdfunding, and I'm not saying that this is Jane specifically or Polly. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions around equity crowdfunding. And people will think from a founder's side, right, that 
I think they'll underestimate the amount of work that it takes to actually run a successful equity crowdfunding campaign, which literally has the word campaign in it. So this is a marketing campaign. You might need to dedicate you know, time, your time, resources, paid ads. Um, and I know that some of the most successful founders that I've seen that have raised on equity crowdfunding literally count it as like their full-time job for that three to six months. I know that Jane um, hadn't uh, necessarily put aside that time. And I think that they were kind of saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best return on investment as far as her time. Yeah. And on that note, you talk to a lot of founders that are planning on raising or are raising. What are some of the pros and cons that they're considering as they're looking at equity crowdfunding? Yeah, I think we've talked about this as far as like on what are the types of companies that will naturally gravitate towards equity crowdfunding. And that's why I think we see like a lot of consumer goods. Um, If you have a strong customer base, right, that's like the preset audience who know your product, already like it, you have their email information, right, you can reach out to them. And if they love your product, why not kind of support in another way? And that's through investing, right? I think that's a natural um, next step in that conversation. So I think a lot of the founders who are looking at equity crowdfunding say, okay, we have an audience that's ready to tap as in through customers. But I also think that a lot of the founders that we talk to through the new majority investor circle, they're also looking at it, not just as like an easy audience to tap, but they're also looking at it as a way to further align, like continue growing their marketing, further align their customer base to become really like evangelists. Not only do they love the product and buy the product, but then they're actually invested in the product and then telling their friends and family, hey, you should check this out. So it creates this really positive feedback loop. I think though that some of the reasons why founders will lean away from equity crowdfunding is it is so relatively new. It's not new anymore but it is still relatively new and so if you are looking for follow-on investment from venture capital or from other institutional investors you may still get some pushback on why did you raise funds from the community kind of what's their stake in the company and a lot of the things about how we talked about like is that the fundraising of last resort yeah and it since it is sort of new how have you seen it evolve in the last few years? And how do you see it evolving moving forward? Yes, a brief history of equity crowdfunding in the US, right? So in 2012, the Jobs Act was passed uh, by President Obama, and that actually included equity crowdfunding. Previously, it had already been within the UK, there it is around in kind of the global scene. But this was the first time that in the US equity crowdfunding had actually become legalized. Unfortunately, there's a little pause because in 2016, that's when the SEC actually implements the policy. And it's not just in the laws, right, but it's actually usable. So in 2017, which is the first year that equity crowdfunding was actually usable within the US, 75 million was raised through equity crowdfunding, which is like a drop in the bucket when we think about everything fundraising, but still pretty impressive when you think about what the legal limits for each campaign was. Um, There were a lot of restrictions to the policy. I think it was like, get a little bit done, not necessarily the whole kit and caboodle. Um, And so in 2020, that's when there were key updates to equity crowdfunding policies, which were then kind of rolled out in subsequent years. So some of those key updates were increasing 
the limit of how much you could raise from just over 1 million to 5 million. We've seen SPVs, which allow basically not every single investor who goes through a campaign doesn't have to be listed on the cap table, which is a problem for uh, follow-on investors. Um, and then lastly, I think the big update was really testing the water. So if you weren't sure if your campaign was going to be well-received, you know, you could do a test the waters campaign, see what folks think. Um, and then if you get a really good response, actually go through and uh, launch that campaign. So in 2021, uh, 500 million was raised. And then TechCrunch actually recently reported that in 2022, so from January to May, so first half of 2022, um, more than 215 million uh, was invested into startups through equity crowdfunding. So there has been, you know, growth and sometimes incremental growth, but definitely growth uh, year over year through equity crowdfunding. And I think that this shows more founders are aware of equity crowdfunding as an opportunity to raise capital. Um, more investors are coming to equity crowdfunding as a way to invest kind of their hard-earned money and diversify their portfolios. But I also think that showing that there has been perhaps kind of a reduction in the uh, prejudice or stigma against equity crowdfunding. And TechCrunch is reported on this trend, not just as maybe a reduction in stigma, but almost like this full-on flip where some of these institutional investors and traditional VCs are now actually looking towards these platforms like Republic, like WeFunder, like Start Engine to actually scout for pipeline for companies that they could potentially invest in the future. So hopefully we'll see in the next five, 10 years that this trend will actually continue um, and equity crowdfunding won't be kind of this like mysterious, have you heard of it? But more as like a standard way for everyday investors to get started in investing in the companies that, like I said, they want to see in the world that they're going to live in. I also think it's really important to note that because funding for females in the VC world has historically been so low, that equity crowdfunding as a tool for especially female founders should increase in popularity. Yeah. So there's um, a theory that, and there's some academic research on this that shows uh, we're more likely to invest in the uh, people or the founders that we identify with. And if you look at the like venture capital or even traditional like financial sectors, who's giving out the money and then who's receiving the money, it's not necessarily that diverse on both sides. So I think that's one of the really big potentials through equity crowdfunding is we're literally opening up the pool of potential investors from those who are kind of institutional to right, the quote unquote everyday investors who may not have millions yet, but if they find a company that they believe in, they're already customers, they've done their due diligence and they want to invest, you know, as little as a hundred dollars, this is a way for them to do so. And I think we'll see a lot more of a diverse investor crowd as well as hopefully more diverse groups of founders getting funded. Which I is mean, why we're here. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, since we're talking about the investor side, too, I think we should talk a little bit about the pros and cons for investors who are looking to invest through equity crowdfunding. Yes. I mean, I think that from the investor side, there's a lot lower barrier to entry, right? You don't have to be accredited. Um, you don't have to... Uh, 
go and sign up with like an angel investing group or with a VC firm. Um, so I think it's a lot more immediate access and ability to, to start building your own portfolio. So, you know, for me, for example, like I am building the new majority and building homemade in DC. I meet a lot of amazing founders who are building incredible things. And I would love to support them, not just, you know, shouting them out on, on Instagram or something or like sharing them as a company to uh, potential connections. But I'd love to actually invest in their companies. And if they were to raise through equity crowdfunding, this would be an opportunity for me to do so. I also think about equity crowdfunding as a way to, if you are thinking, you know, when I make my millions, I'd like to invest in companies that are shaping the future and shaping our world. I think you would want to start to build your own portfolio, yes, but like your own knowledge. Um, I learn a lot better by doing so. Once I've invested in a company, I start to kind of track them. I'm learning a little bit about the industry. Um, I'm learning about, you know, why I invested at the beginning. And then a year later, do I still think that's a valid reason for supporting this company? Um, so I think you learn a lot. And my first investment was into 8Track, which was a Spotify competitor <laughs> and clearly did not win the streaming battle. Um, and I invested in it because back in college when I was studying, I used to listen to eight tracks and I was like, I know the company. I like their product. I think that they're going to do really well. Um, and I learned that, you know, really just because you are a user and you think, you know, the company that doesn't mean that they're going to be the company that wins the entire market. Um, so I definitely learned a little something about taking a peek at competitors and where they're at. <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to learn about businesses, business models, different investment mechanisms. I know I've learned a ton just joining the new majority team. And before the new majority, you had not heard of equity crowdfunding. Right? No, and I, I think it's like a really daunting term when you first hear it too. But then when you break it into the component parts, it's like, okay, there's equity, the crowd, and then the funding, and it feels a bit more simple. But yeah, I hadn't heard about it before joining. And and I think that equity crowdfunding, it is providing, like we talked about a lot of the good aspects, right? It provides, it opens up access. Maybe we're diversifying the investors out there and hopefully then diversifying the founders who get funded. But I think it's also really important to mention that it is still investing within private companies for equity. So a couple of things is, and I learned this was, uh, with 8Tracks, is if the company doesn't succeed, the people who hold debt get paid back first. <laughs> the people who hold equity or shares, they, they get paid back last. And in my case, nothing, right? Which brings me to the second point is, it is investing in private companies, which is super risky. Even public companies have a level of kind of standard for sharing information. And when you're private, you don't have to share as much information. So you're making this really risky bet uh, with very little information. So that I think it's a really good thing to start with that smaller $100, uh, maybe $200 uh, level. Yeah, there's an interesting juxtaposition between increasing accessibility and still not everyone should be doing it. Yeah, but it is a great way to learn, right? And yeah. I think that that's part of what we're trying to always do with the new majority is not necessarily saying like these companies are going to go to the moon and hop on board or you're going to miss out, but really 
trying to talk about who is that company, who's the founder, what's their why, what's their mission, how does this company even make money, who are the competitors. And I think that by breaking each investment opportunity down into kind of the core basics, you get to start to build kind of your intuition on why are you investing. And I think that the more everyday investors can build those skills, the better equipped they are, whether they want to become angel investors, institutional investors, or if they just want to learn about particular industries and build new relationships uh, for their own professional development. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is for a later conversation, but I wonder too, if as the founder, when you're running the campaign or after the campaign's over, if you end up learning a lot more about your business too. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And we should ask our future founders on the podcast, what are kind of their biggest lessons learned? I feel like this topic is so interesting and we're going to have so many good conversations about it. (laughs) This is fun. I think it's interesting recording uh, these conversations. You know, you and I probably wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't care about these things. I know that this is our first debrief episode, but I would love to have one of our new majority investor circle members actually join us for a debrief, share their thoughts, what they've learned, what they thought about the founder, where it fits within their portfolio, maybe their first investment. If anybody wants to share their first investment, like, you know, mine was in eight tracks and wasn't a winner, but I am looking forward to seeing where the rest of my portfolio grows to. So, so many questions. If you'd like to join us, please give us a shout. Thank you again to Colleen and our podcast and DC analyst intern, Veshnavi, for the amazing research that went into this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode coming out in February and check out the latest New Majority featured founder on thenewmajorityinvest.com. This was fun. Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot more to learn.